Hello, listeners. This is Paul Gregory, SVP and Chief People and Culture Officer at Mitel Networks. We're a Canadian-based telecommunications company with offices all around the world. My goal here at Mitel is to create a company culture that inspires courage, empathy, and kindness. That's where truly transformative change starts. At Mitel, we love how the Lead from the Heart podcast is helping leaders realize their full potential to better serve their people, and we're proud to be their sole sponsor. If you'd like to learn more about Mitel, you can find us at mitel.com forward slash mark, M-A-R-K. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast, and I thank you for doing so. I'll start things off with a question. You ever worked in an organization where top executives asked employees to implement a major change, you know, to pivot in a new direction or adopt an entirely different process, only to see people deliberately drag their feet and prevent that change from occurring? I'm going to guess you have, because much research has shown that the far majority of change initiatives in business actually fail, and for a surprisingly similar reason. My guest today is David Schoenthal. He's the award-winning professor of innovation and entrepreneurship at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. And he's the author of the new bestseller, The Human Element, Overcoming the Resistance That Awaits New Ideas. And David's brilliant insight is that what too many leaders do when they see that their desired change is slow in coming is they heighten the appeal of the idea itself. In other words, they try to put more what David calls fuel on the benefits of the change instead of investigating and even anticipating the psychological and emotional reasons why people are reluctant to support the change or even entirely resist it. The word I suspect we're all going to hear more often, I'm pretty certain, is the word friction. David introduces it in his book to describe what often inhibits successful change initiatives, and his book specifically explores the four key frictions that operate against innovation and change. And as a quick summary, just as the preface to the whole conversation you're about to hear, David argues, we human beings are creatures of habit, and that means we don't change easily. We like to stick to what we know, even when we know it limits us. We follow the path of least resistance and we seek to minimize effort. We often feel emotionally threatened by requests to change our behavior. And we have a very strong impulse to resist when we feel that change is being imposed upon us. So of course, David has the leadership remedies for all four of these, and that's what I'm excited to discuss with him today. By the way, people often ask me, how does an organization specifically transition away from traditional leadership practices and into a lead from the heart like philosophy? So how do you overcome all that built in resistance to making that kind of a change? Well, I thought at the end of our conversation that I'd let David advise us on how to accomplish that for all of us. And I gave him advance notice that I'm going to ask him this question at the end so that he could be fully prepared with all the ammunition, with all the research he's done, with all the knowledge he has to teach us. So let me stop there and get things underway. Welcome to the podcast, David Schoenthal. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm looking forward to this. A main theme of your book, we'll get right to it, is that whenever any of us seeks to introduce change, we tend to accentuate all the benefits of the change while failing to adequately address the resistant forces that often prevent its adoption. And then when we do sense resistance, 
you say that our instinct is almost always to double down by adding more of what you call fuel to the change instead of finding ways to eliminate the friction against it. And you tell this very illustrative story at the beginning of your book about why bullets fly with tremendous accuracy. Mm. And we think it's the power of the gunpowder that makes this happen when actually it's something else. So set the stage for the rest of our conversation by telling us the real reason bullets fly with such precision and inherently explain this idea of fuel and friction. (laughs) So we introduced the friction theory at the beginning of the book with this metaphor of what it is that makes a bullet fly. And if you were to ask a room full of 100 people, a couple hundred people, what makes a bullet fly? Most people's reaction to that is gunpowder is what makes a bullet fly, which is True, right? Gunpowder ignites inside of the barrel of the gun, forcing the bullet out the end of the barrel and towards its target with a lot of power. But while gunpowder is true, it's only sort of one half of the story about why a bullet takes flight, but more importantly, why a bullet is able to hit its target with accuracy sometimes for distances as great as two miles. And the other side of what makes a bullet fly and what makes a bullet fly with accuracy is not just its power, but its aerodynamics. Bullets are designed in such a way where they cut through drag and wind resistance and overcome the forces of gravity, all of which are constantly trying to stifle it on its way towards its destination. And unless a bullet is equally aerodynamic as it is powerful, it will never actually reach its target. It'll never achieve its goal. And we use that metaphor to talk about ideas, like what makes ideas take flight? What makes new products and services or change initiatives take flight? Most people's instinct about it is it's whatever's propelling that change forward. So it's the push of the circumstance or the problem that someone's trying to solve, or it's all of the magnetism of the product or the service or the strategy. And we fail to recognize that just like a bullet, new ideas encounter all sorts of resistance on their way to its destination. And in this book, we highlight what we refer to as the four frictions that are constantly working against these changes as they're attempting to reach their audience or reach the market. And so that metaphor at the beginning of the book, I think, is a nice way of kind of framing up the mental model we want people to have as they read through the content. Well, that's why I asked the question, because I thought, well, they actually framed this up really, really well. So We spent a lot of time thinking about that metaphor, so I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad it landed. Well, it does land, and it's really important in terms of drawing you in. And I think, you know, anybody who's been in business knows that you're right. I'll give you an example. I remember working for an organization. It was a financial institution, and they were largely service-focused. And, you know, woke up one day and realized they weren't going to survive if they didn't become much more sales-focused. And so the CEO got up in front of everyone and said, this is going to be great for shareholders. This is going to be great for company. This is going to be great for our earnings. And he was met with massive resistance because it never dawned on him that people were afraid that that's not what I was hired to do. These aren't the skills that I have. I'm going to get fired if I don't adapt. And on and on it went. And no one was thinking about the friction. And that's what resonated with me when I read your story. It was like, yeah. This happens all the time. And Mm -hmm. even John Cotter's work has shown the research that he did many years ago showed that 
the majority of companies that launch major change initiatives fail. And I think this is one of the principal reasons why they're thinking about it backwards. So you mentioned that there's four different kinds of frictions, and I want to talk about those in a minute. But suffice to say that there are all different kinds of resistance. Mm -hmm. And so this other insight that you bring up earlier in your book is that frictions against change are often difficult to spot because they require empathy, which I thought was a particularly great insight. In other words, they require that we understand our audience, the people that we're trying to change or get to change with us, and to see the world from their perspective. And so from a leadership point of view, which is really the whole focus of this discussion, obviously applying your work to leadership, tell us what you mean and perhaps you know, even give us another real life example. Sure. The book is called The Human Element, and that's very deliberate. We believe that no matter if you're in B2B or B2C or designing change inside of an organization, at the end of every business process, at the end of every organizational design, at the end of every product or service is a human being. And what makes something appealing and interesting to one human being can mean something very different to another. And in order to understand, A, what motivates somebody to change, but also what makes them resistant to change, you need to try to understand the context that they find themselves in, which is almost always going to be different than the context of the innovator. And one of the interesting things about this fuel and friction tension is that we all, as human beings, are biased to thinking in terms of fuel. If somebody's not saying yes, if somebody's not getting on board with this change in the example that you gave, if some transformation inside of an organization isn't getting the type of internal support it needs, most innovators' instinct is, well, I'm not explaining it properly. I'm not doing a good enough job of getting people on board with this. So I either need to change the way that I'm speaking about it or I need to offer some incentives for them to get on board. There's something wrong with the thing that I am bringing to the world. And we don't immediately think, well, maybe it's not the thing. Maybe it's there's something that's not landing with that audience. And maybe the reason it's not landing with that audience isn't because I'm not explaining it properly. Maybe it's to the point that you mentioned, Mark. Maybe it's because, boy, I don't know if I feel equipped to handle this. Or, boy, this gives me a lot of anxiety about my place in the organization. Or, or man, what you're describing seems lofty, but it also seems really ambiguous. And in order to understand the human side of this, one of the things that would be true of any of these frictions that we're going to talk about is that unless you're able to perspective take from the people that you're designing for, you will never fully understand. And even if you try to perspective take, you'll never really fully understand what it is that might be holding them back or propelling them forward. And I think empathy is something we talk about a lot in business right now. I don't think there's an organization that wouldn't say that empathy is one of its core values. But that's also a really tricky thing to figure out how to operationalize. Well, how do you operationalize empathy? Like, what does it mean to look at the world through someone else's eyes? I used to work at a big design firm called IDEO. Mm -hmm. And we would spend a lot of time doing ethnographic visits and going into people's homes and trying to understand what their worldview is. And it was really helpful in designing products and services. But going into somebody's home for an afternoon doesn't really give you a sense of what their entire lived experience is like or what their worldview is like. And the ultimate form of trying to have some empathy and build empathy into the organization is to actually have the people you're designing for involved in the design process or involved in the transformation process or involved in the organizational change process. Because while we may have a hunch about what it is that might be holding them back, we'll never really know unless they've got a seat at the table. So you asked for an example. 
there is a great story that we tell in the book. Well, I gen- I feel like all the stories are great stories. So I guess I'm a little- <laughs> we'll we'll grade them later. Is there a particularly great story? This one gets a nine. I'm sorry. This, yeah, this this one this one is the, is, is above and yeah. So it also comes from IDEO. So about eight years ago or so, IDEO was featured on 60 Minutes, which is a television show here in the United States on Sunday evenings, a sort of news magazine. And it was a retrospective on design thinking. So IDEO is a firm that pioneered design thinking and and was founded by a guy named David Kelly. And David has been this sort of scion of design thinking. And back in the late 90s, Nightline did a special on IDEO that has become kind of design thinking folklore about designing a shopping cart. This 60 Minutes episode was meant to sort of revisit the world of design thinking 25 years later or whatever it was. So long story short, there's this special on IDEO and design thinking and David Kelly on 60 Minutes. And one of the members of the audience of this show was a woman named Barbara Beskin. And Barbara, at the time, was living in an assisted living facility or a a retirement community in Palo Alto near IDEO's home studio. Saw this special on design thinking and and got really inspired by it. She had a background in design. She had worked in the military as a designer, has spent a lot of time inventing and designing both process as well as products and services, and got so inspired by what she saw, she wrote, and this is not a joke, a handwritten letter to the Palo Alto studio of IDEO saying, hello, I'm Barbara Beskin. I have a background in design. I was really fascinated by what I saw on 60 Minutes. I would very much like to come work for you. And I don't know who was inside of the organization that received this handwritten letter from Barbara Beskin, but clearly the answer was like, yes, we'd love for you to come in and talk. And so Barbara, at the age of 90, joined IDEO, helping teams develop products and services and strategies for for elders, for people that are of advanced age, where the typical designer who might be 32 or 33 years old might have a sense of like what the functional needs of some of these individuals are, but most certainly has no real conception of what their emotional needs are. And even more important, what their sources of like emotional friction and resistance might be. And one of the things that Barbara was bringing to project teams that she worked with was not just a sense of like how somebody could interact with an app or a piece of software if they had arthritis or macular degeneration, but also how would somebody who is in their 80s or 90s react to this value proposition in ways that you as a 35-year-old designer might not have appreciated. And one specific example comes from some work that the team was considering doing with a company that built retirement communities around the country. And one of the ideas that the team came up with for making this a more appealing place for retirees to move was to design it a little bit like an all-inclusive resort where you show up and once a year they charge you an annual activity fee or something like this. And then for the rest of the year, you can participate in all of these activities and not worry about being nickel and dimed and, and paying a la carte, thinking that they would remove a bunch of stress by having this upfront activity fee. And then the rest of the year would be relatively carefree and you can pick and choose what you want to do. And the team was pretty pumped about this because it removed a lot of the anxiety and, hey, it works for all-inclusive resorts. Why wouldn't it work for a retirement community? And when Barbara got wind of this or when it was presented to her, her initial reaction is, this is awful. You can't possibly do that. And the team was like, well, why can't you? And what Barbara illuminated for them, which I think is just absolutely crucial and also, I think, often overlooked, 
is that when somebody is coming to a retirement community or for the first time, think about the steady stream of losses that they will have had to incur along the way. Mm -hmm. They've probably lost their mobility. They've lost their income. They may have lost a spouse. Most likely they've lost their ability to drive. And now they've probably lost some sight. They've probably lost some hearing. And now before they do anything in this community, you're asking them to part with a big upfront payment for an activity fee. Like it's just another bit of loss in this constant stream of losses. Like that's not the right way to welcome these people to this new experience. And of course, when Barbara mentioned that to the team, the team's like, my God, you're right. Like, how could we have thought about that? And no matter how many empathy exercises you engage with, no matter how much ethnographic research you do, like this is an insight that really only comes from having the perspective of the people you're designing for on the team, because not only do they bring that functional expertise, but they also bring all of this background information that can help you identify where these sources of unexpected headwind will come from. You know, as I'm listening to this, and by the way, that was a very good story. <laughs> you know, working for IDEO, you're coming from or brought to them a very enlightened point of view, right? You wouldn't be working there if you weren't following a different path in terms of your thinking. And obviously, everybody in the room is like, yeah, let's bring a 90-year-old woman into the company and have her help us. Like, that didn't seem to strike as being unreasonable or unnecessary. So it begs the question for me is, Maybe a quick answer here, because I really want to make sure that we have time to get to mm. your your different frictions. But why do you think empathy comes so hard to us in business? Why are we so quick to go to fuel and so slow to understand that if we really took time to understand where people are coming from and what might be the resistance, that we might be able to implement this change much easier and better? Yeah. Well, there's a bunch of different ways to answer that. But I think the shortest way to answer that is that the habit of the human mind is to view the world through the lens of our own experience. Like we rarely take into account situational forces and typically view things as being a result of our presence in that experience. So like if you're driving down the freeway in San Diego, if you're driving down the five and you see somebody like speeding and darting in and out of traffic and generally driving like a crazy person, what is your first instinct about that person? It's probably like that person's a jerk or that person's inebriated or that person's a menace to society or whatever it might be. And rarely do we stop and think, well, maybe that person's an emergency technician on their way to the scene of an accident, or maybe that person's got a sick kid in the back. Like we rarely think about things through the possibilities of someone else. We tend to think things through our own filter. And as a result, particularly when in the world of innovation and change, we desperately want to feel like we're in control of our ability to influence others. We want to feel like we've got the ability to make something stick if people aren't getting it. And so it's terribly unsatisfying and frankly, really ambiguous and challenging to think, all right, it's not the thing, it's the audience. How do I develop the audience? Like there's no classes for that. Yes, it's exactly right. There isn't. We teach marketing, we teach sales, but we don't teach friction removal. We don't teach how to make it easier for people to get on board with something like those are really different disciplines. Well, we're going to talk about sales a little bit later here, but let's get into your frictions. You remind us that all humans are creatures of habit and we don't easily change and we even tend to fight it. So I think everybody's heads are nodding. But let's take your four identified frictions and discuss them one at a time, starting with inertia. Tell us why inertia factors into change and how leaders can overcome it. Yeah. So inertia, this first friction really is the answer to the question how much of a departure is the change from the status quo? 
And the more the change is a departure from the status quo, the higher the friction of inertia will, will show up or the more profoundly the, the friction of inertia will show up. And yeah, the phrase human beings are creatures of habit is not just a saying. It is absolutely true. There's a psychological principle phenomenon called the status quo bias, which basically means that even though we know the current situation is imperfect and there's lots of things that we ought to do differently, we tend to stick with what we know because it's what we know. And if you think about like colloquialisms and turns of phrase that reinforce this, the devil you know versus the devil you don't, we might constantly be thinking, I should do X or I should do Y or I should change this about my life or I should change this about the way I approach my work. But it takes a lot of cognitive load. It takes a lot of effort to think about doing things differently. And we often underestimate just how strong the tug of the status quo is which is really where this force of inertia comes from. Another reminder of the importance of empathy, right? <laughs> Number two on your list of frictions is effort. Mm -hmm. And by that, you mean the greater effort needed to implement the change, the stronger the resistance. <laughs> so yeah. I find that amusing, but that's, you know, we're kind of lazy. We want the path of least resistance. So tell us why effort creates drag and how leaders can overcome that one too. Yeah, well, and I'll also say that it's not just like physical effort. I think one of the things we define under effort is it could be cognitive effort. How ambiguous is the change? Like, is it clear how we're going to do this or is it not clear? Like the classic example of ambiguity is some leader coming into their organization and saying, all right, we're going to go through a digital transformation initiative or it's going to be strategy 2.0 and it's all going to be about innovation and disruption. And you can see a lot of nodding heads in the audience, but unless you're crystal clear about like, what is the first step in that process? Like, how do we become more innovative? Like, what day do we start becoming more innovative? What's the first activity in becoming more innovative? Or what are the, the things we need to do differently in order to be disruptive? Unless we create a roadmap for people to follow, these big lofty goals create a lot of ambiguity and cognitive effort on behalf of the audience that no matter how much they're on board with the principle, they won't actually do anything because they don't know how and they don't know how to get started. Is that because leaders don't tend to be granular, that they chunk it up and give the big picture and don't think about, hey, I'm going to have to explain how we actually accomplish this? What's the gap? I mean, I think it could be that. I also think it's a little bit of the curse of knowledge. Like if a leader has been swimming around in their own ideas for strategy, it might make total sense to them based on where they sit in the organization. But how is somebody in sort of lower middle management or even sort of front line supposed to be able to operationalize that and work that into their day job? For a CEO or a COO or a manager, like they may have total clarity over how this affects their world and how they want everybody to adopt it. But that might not filter down to others. And this goes back to the, we tend to view things through the lens of our own experience and not necessarily through those we're trying to influence or change. So part of it could be they're not granular and tactical enough. Part of it might be they feel like they're empowering their organization by making the roadmap a little bit less clear to allow people this sense of inventorship when in fact they're actually causing them to be paralyzed because they don't know how to get started. So there's a variety of reasons why, but they all kind of ladder up to this theme of ambiguity. I do want to call something out here that you said a few moments ago, just because I thought it was especially thoughtful and illustrative of what we're talking about here, which is when you describe the show 60 Minutes, you recognize that the people that are listening to this aren't all familiar with 60 Minutes. <clears throat> and like your audience is outside of America. And if you're not familiar, 60 Minutes is a new show that's on Sunday nights. And very few people would think to do that. But 
it's so thoughtful because people are like, well, I don't know what 60 minutes is. And then you nail it down very quickly. But that comes with training. That comes with experience. That comes with thoughtfulness. And it comes with empathy. Thank you, I guess. <laughs> I mean, this also comes from some experience too, Mark. It's not like I must have heard from international audiences earlier in my career, like, hey, you, you started jumping into a story without creating the context for everybody to get on board. And not knowing the, the reach of the audience of the podcast, which I imagine you get a bunch of international listeners, I've just sort of learned to not make that assumption. But that comes with experience. And frankly, it comes with a bit of a growth mindset because I think there's plenty of leaders who have risen to positions of authority in their companies by doing things a certain way and just sort of hoping that everybody gets on board with it. And when you get enough power in an organization, you kind of don't necessarily worry about changing yourself. You just expect everybody else to change to accommodate you. I think the best leaders are the ones that take feedback like, hey, it would be great if you'd set context before you jump into a story. Like the leaders that are willing to take that feedback on and learn from their experience to become a little bit more others focused are the ones that will ultimately be the most magnetic and most successful and frankly, the ones that will remove the most friction. Oh, well, I love that you added that to it. I was going to say amen. Now I have to say amen twice. <laughs> you know, the thing is, is that we're very selective here. I read the books before I have a sense of whether or not this is going to be appropriate for the audience. And there's a lot of genius in this. And that's one of the common denominators of pretty much everybody that's ever come on is that they're sharing insights that they've learned through their research, they've learned through their experience. And that when I read it, I'm like, this is what I'm hoping the world adopts, this understanding, this kind of thinking, that, the thoughtful example that you just gave. So I'm complimenting you, but also sort of ringing the bell and saying, pay attention, everyone. This is, this is one of those exemplary behaviors that will get you far in leadership. It's nice of you to say. And I will also say that one of the things that I have learned in the process of writing this book with Lauren Nordgren, who's my co-author, is once we even created this language of friction theory, so inertia, um, uh, we haven't talked about emotion and reactance, but inertia, effort, emotion, and reactance, it's even influenced how we work with each other. Like once you give names to sources of friction, once you give names to reasons that people resist, it even helped our collaboration. Writing a book with another person is not necessarily an easy thing to do, but we utilize the techniques of the book in order to try to facilitate a better, more healthy working dynamic between the two of us. And just sometimes having a shared language, whereas in a management organization or a leadership organization, we can say, all right, what are the sources of inertia we're likely to encounter in this effort? Mm. Where do we think the effort-related friction will come from? Are we being too ambiguous? Do we think this is clear? Is there a clear roadmap? Where do we think we might encounter some emotional friction? Just creating that space and that language to have that conversation is a really big step. Let me underscore that because I didn't make that connection until you just said it. But if you're implementing change, i.e. anyone listening to this, if you're asked to implement any change or you want to personally drive some sort of change, going through this and saying, where's the inertia? Where's the emotion? Where are the drags? If you can anticipate it before, then that's going to drive better behavior in terms of the way you're going to present this. And I think you just underscored something that's really important. And in addition, these things are always easier to manage when you can spot them and deal with them up front. Once they have presented themselves, they are much more challenging to try to put back in the box. 
sometimes once they show up or exacerbate, the damage is already done. So one of the habits we're trying to form with people that we're working with is how do you forecast where these things are? Maybe they don't show up at all, but just having the advanced forecasting and trying to put in place some tactics to mitigate them up front is far more productive than trying to solve them as problems later. I agree. If you're speaking in front of an audience and you you say, well, just in case anyone in the audience is feeling this, let me tell you this, just in case anyone's Mm -hmm. feeling this. So you're addressing the fear, the ambiguity, whatever is going through their fantasy, which are often true. You know, sometimes when organizations don't make the shift, then people are the consequence. You know, well, you didn't get where we needed you to get to. So, you know, we don't have a role for you. People have seen that play out. So that kind of deliberateness in anticipating where people are, how they're likely to respond, and then tailoring what they're saying up front so that they don't get those responses or so that they nail what people are feeling and people go, oh, well, yeah, that was what I was feeling. And thank you for that reassurance. And now I'm ready to get on board. Right. And and everybody's first reaction to hearing some sort of a strategic change or organizational change is first, how is this going to be a problem for me? Like everything is kind of guilty before proven innocent. So first I need to put it through my rubric of like, is this a bad thing for me? And I'm going to think about all the ways that it could be a bad thing for me versus the leader who's up on the, the stage trying to talk about all the goodness. It's literally two conversations. One is about how we're going to grow the organization. And everyone in the audience is like, how is this going to be a problem for me? And it's like, Unless it's acknowledged and those two pieces are connected or smooth, it's really, it talk about an idea traveling to its destination. Think about all of the resistance that idea will face or even whether or not people will pay attention because they're so consumed in thinking about themselves that they might not even be listening to what's said. So it's really challenging. Number three on your list is emotion. And I have a yeah, few which questions. Which we're already sort of getting into, We actually. are. I was just going to say that. <laughs> we, kind of, we kind of anticipated where we were going here. Flawlessly executed. <laughs> right. The brilliance of the interviewer. So <laughs> is there anything you want to add? Because I have a couple more questions that I want to pin down. But is there anything else that you want to say in terms of setting the stage for how emotion yeah. plays into this? I think the one thing I'll say, so emotional friction is all of the undesired feelings or anxieties that our new idea causes in others. And there will always be anxiety or trepidation with anything new. I think the only twist I will put on it is that oftentimes emotional friction is caused by us. Like emotional friction is actually a byproduct or a side effect of something we're actually trying to do to help people. Uh, In fact, sometimes in an effort to reduce some friction, we cause other friction inadvertently. An example from the book comes from some work that we did with an organization that supports procurement professionals, chief procurement officers. And a sidebar in the story is that I had lunch with a chief procurement officer of a large global bank and at the time was working for a consultancy and so wanted to pick this individual's brain sitting next to them at lunch. And we started asking, so in order to sell services into the bank, is the best thing I can do for you, chief procurement officer, to try to show you my best and final pricing and to show you very transparently how I arrived at all my discounts, just to make this really easy so that you can say yes and save your team and your yourself a bunch of time. And the CPO turned to me and said, oh, please, like almost horrified, don't do that. I was like, well, why? It's going to make things much more efficient. And the reaction was, well, if you do that, what value am I showing to the organization? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And then he's like, well, look, I have to discover the value 
inside of your proposal so that I can show my CFO and I can show my CEO or my board, look at all of the savings or value we've been able to generate as a procurement function. And what never occurred to me until that moment, foolishly, is that what was in the best interest of the company was not necessarily in the best interest of the gatekeeper. And while the CFO or the board would have said, yes, absolutely come in with best and final and save us a bunch of time and hassle, the person inside of that organization that was responsible for bringing that idea in felt that emotionally like, well, this might make us less relevant. This might make us non-essential, which is the opposite of adding value to their experience. So sometimes in an effort to do something on behalf of an organization, we cause emotional friction in the individuals inside of that organization that are key to making it happen, which is sometimes I get caught in this question during talks or speaking or teaching at Kellogg, you know, is this true? Is this, is friction theory as useful for B2B as it is for B2C? And the answer is absolutely mm-hmm. because people in B2B, like B2B, like B's are just a bunch of C's. Like inside of a business are a lot of individuals who have different pains, gains, and jobs to be done. If I don't understand all of their initiatives and all of their frictions, I'm going to get confused when the organization says they want something, but it never gets off the ground. And it's because I haven't taken into account the individual emotional friction points of all of these individuals that need to be influenced. Empathy plays a role again here. (laughs) One of the main themes of this podcast is that emotions have profound influence over human behavior and that negative emotions are more lasting and powerful in their impact. And you make those identical points in your book. So it's always nice to have somebody else make the the points that I'm I'm trying to make. So tell us why understanding this is so important to leaders, especially because this is not common knowledge. I mean... I could speak for the whole rest of our time on this. I just think that sometimes we forget that our work lives, I mean, business is a social enterprise and people find identity in their work. They find meaning in their work. They're giving most of their lives to their work. They probably have deeper relationships with some of their work colleagues than they do with some of their friends. So much of our individual identity and sense of personal value is tied up in what we do. And it's easy to be a leader of an organization and sort of take for granted how much emotion our workforce and our people and our colleagues put into their jobs. And so something that might seem small and innocuous to us can actually meaningfully affect their view of themselves, their satisfaction with the organization, or even their sense of purpose if we're not careful with understanding just how much emotional value employees seek from our companies. In fact, I was on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and this is borrowed from a friend and colleague of mine named Bob Mesta, who's one of the pioneers of jobs theory. Bob is clear to point out that employers don't just hire employees, employees hire employers. Like your employees have hired your company. They've hired it to do a functional job, which is pay them and give them benefits and advance their career. They've hired it to do an emotional job, which is to give them purpose and a sense of meaning and a sense of community and a sense of identity. And they've hired it to do a social job, which is the status that it conveys to people in their lives and in their and in their work. And if you're not clear on the fact that your employees have hired you to do these three jobs and you're only indexing on the functional jobs that people have hired you to do, you are going to miss and frankly bear the unfortunate effects of missing the fact that the social and emotional stuff is often just as, if not more important. 
I mean, it reminds me that, you know, in the business that I grew up in, that there's still this pervasive attitude that, hey, you're lucky to have a job here. <laughs> you know, they're not really thinking about you're hiring me as much as I'm hiring you. You're thinking like, I have all the cards. I get to pick who gets to work here. We're going through an interview process. If you made it successfully, then you're lucky. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly an attitude and a mindset that needs to change. Because I think if you bring that mindset into how you lead an organization, and it, it just happens is people are not really conscious of it. But people yeah. then feel that, to your point about emotions. So people end up feeling like, hey, they just treat me like I'm here for them, yeah. not necessarily here for me too. And once people feel that, I think it's over. That's a fuel-based mindset, right? The magnetism of my company is so attractive, you'd be so lucky as to come work for us versus like, all right, this is a really talented person. I wonder what might be standing in the way of them saying yes. So when I do interviews, either directly or indirectly, I'll always ask somebody like, what would be standing in the way of you saying yes to a job right now? Or what would be your biggest points of hesitation as you considered whether or not to work here? We almost never ask that question. We just assume people would be delighted to sign a a contract the moment we put one in front of them. But that is a very one-sided and fuel-based way of looking at it. And I think especially where we are at right now, Like employees are dying for talent. There is this crazy dynamic in the working world right now. And if we don't take a friction orientation to this and we're only thinking about fuel, we're going to lose. Amen. Again, I said we were going to talk a little bit about sales and I'm asking if you could kind of give me a quick answer to this one because I'm ambitious. I've got a bunch of other stuff that I want to get to. (laughs) You tell the story about this guy named Ali Rita, and he's the best car salesperson in the world because in one year he sold almost 1,600 cars when the average dealership with all the different salespeople and assistants sells about 1,100. So this guy is a star. Mm -hmm. His success is 12 times better than the average salesperson. But what makes him so successful, as you describe, is that his approach is to reduce friction. So he doesn't call himself a salesperson or a sales representative. He calls himself an advisor. And he seeks to genuinely help his customers, even if it means referring them to competitors or waiting months for a purchase. So he's all about the long game. He's all about trust. He doesn't try to close someone just to make a sale. And as I'm, you know, I'm thinking, like there's so much focus on sales and there's so many books on sales. Why don't all car salespeople adopt his approach? Why don't all salespeople in any business take on his approach when it proves to be that successful? The short answer is I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it would seem obvious to me as well. And, and I think it's just reorienting the process of sales. I mean, we talk about in the book back in, and there's going to be a slightly longer answer than you're looking for, back in the day, the job of salespeople was to tell you everything that you couldn't figure out on your own in order to get you in a car or get you in a television or whatever. But now everybody has the ability to find their own information. I can do a ton of research on cars so that when I walk into a dealership, I've already kind of sold myself on the idea that this car could very much be for me. I don't need you to sell me everything that I've already read. What I need you to do is remove the anxiety that's standing in my way. So Ali has, I think, realized that people can find their own sources of fuel. They can read car websites. They can read Blue Book reviews. They can read Car and Driver, like all of this stuff. When they come into the dealership, they've already got enough fuel behind them that they don't need to be sold on the car. What they need to do is have all of these sources of friction removed. 
And by doing that in a really elegant and patient way, Ali is just absolutely outperforming. I mean, single-handedly outperforming some dealerships because he knows that his job isn't to come and tell you stuff you already know. His job is to remove the stuff standing in your way. I love it. By the way, every sales manual in these dealerships is written about how to sell a customer, how to make them feel a sense of urgency. It's all like classic old school sales tactics and they haven't been updated to reflect the fact that now all these things, people come into the dealership knowing in their own heads, we need to redesign how we teach sales. I mean, to that point, my principal argument here, the whole reason for this podcast is that we need to completely reinvent how we think about leadership because, you know, the guy who owns the dealership trains the guy that, that comes in and then he trains the person that comes in after him. And so we just keep passing on this attitude that customers are marks and we have to hit our numbers by the end of the quarter or the end of the month. And wow. you're no good if you don't make a sale today and all that kind of mindset that it is completely inconsistent with Ali Rita. Another side story. We did some work at IDEO with a hospitality company on their sales force. And to make a long story short, this one hospitality company that was selling vacations, their top performing salespeople, like, and when I'm saying top performing, I'm saying doing 5x the average in commissions. We're using exactly none of the scripts that the company recommended, mm -hmm. none of the software that the company recommended, all sorts of rogue behavior because they knew the way their customers wanted to be interacted with was not at all what corporate thought was the best thing for their customers. They knew their customers better than corporate, so they just designed their own methods. Love it. Talk a little bit about resistance. Your essential point is that people don't like having change imposed on them, so we, as human beings, we like to be in control. We want our freedom. I think that's kind of the point that you were making. We don't like being told what to do. And in this environment, whether it's being told to wear a mask or get vaccinated, we've all been pressured to conform and we've seen a lot of people aggressively resist. So maybe using that example or something else, tell us about resistance and then how we overcome it. Yeah, so you're referring to reactance, which is a bit of a mouthful to say, but you're exactly right in your definition. Reactance is a human being's resistance or aversion to being changed by others. And yeah, the phenomenon is that when we feel like we're being pushed into something, we push back with equal, if not greater force, which is actually kind of a beautiful connection to that story about sales and, and car salespeople. Most car salespeople get this pushy reputation. We have this aversion to them because they embody reactance. They're trying to make us they're forcing us to do something or they're hard selling us. And human beings, the moment we feel like we're being manipulated or somebody's trying to, to force us to do something we otherwise wouldn't, it doesn't matter how good their evidence is. It doesn't matter how good the deal is. It doesn't matter how good the vaccine data is or the mask data is. It's no longer about the data. It's about my autonomy and my emotion. And a lot of the mistakes that leaders make is thinking that if somebody's not saying yes, it's an incentive problem or it's an evidence problem or it's a data problem. Mm -hmm. When in fact, no, it's it's a reactance problem. I mean, the, the great resignation is kind of a perfect example of this. Great resignation, or at least that's what we're calling it here in the U.S., is that you know four million people a month are leaving their jobs or something insane, which has just never happened in human history. And a lot of companies are sitting back scratching their heads. Well, why are people leaving their jobs? And most companies think it's, well, because we're not paying people enough or we're not treating them well enough or we're not giving them free parking or free lunches. We need to make the idea of coming into work, coming to work for us more appealing. And what they probably haven't stopped to realize is, well, you know, maybe that's part of it. But what's also probably part of it is at least for the last two years or 18 months where we've all been working from home, Think about how if you're a frontline sort of junior employee or even a middle level employee, 
working for an organization your whole career, having bosses constantly monitoring your whereabouts and watching you as you work in your cubicle. Now, all of a sudden, you're working from home, which means you can step away from the computer for half an hour and go for a walk, or you can wake up a little later. You can have breakfast with your kids, or you can have lunch with your partner, or call your parents in the afternoon. Like, all of a sudden, you're still getting your work done, but your control over your time is now yours. It's this feeling of autonomy and control that people had for 18 months during the pandemic that they never had before they went to work. And now all these employers are saying, come back to the office. Like we're going to give you lunch. Well, this isn't about the idea of making coming into the office more attractive. It's about accommodating this real like magnetism of autonomy that I've gotten to enjoy the last year, year and a half. If you're not going to give that to me, I'm going to go work for another employer that values my autonomy more than you do. And so most employers are making the mistake that this is an incentive or a fuel problem when no, it's not really a fuel problem. It's a reactance problem. How do we give people this feeling of autonomy while still working for our company? And you just went down a road that I didn't anticipate. And I'm really glad you did because there's an Atlantic piece that sort of argues that this great resignation, you know, this 4 million a month has been going on for six or seven months here. So it is astonishing. And the argument was that this is really at the lower levels. This is people that are working in fast food restaurants, Starbucks, you know, they're making $12. They have an opportunity to go to another company to make 14 and they jump. But you can't ignore what happened over the last two years and not think that everyone on the planet had the same epiphany that you just described, which is there may be some downsides, which I just wrote about. There are downsides to never going back to the office, but giving people the autonomy that you just described, people don't ever want to give that up again. And so I wrote this article arguing that there are serious downsides to being permanently isolated, more social, more emotional, more human. And the people that responded negatively were the ones who came out and said, hell no, we won't go because you're going to take away the very thing that you just described, which is the freedom to walk my dog at noon, you know, have a longer lunch, whatever it is that they want to do. So well done. I think that's really, really good. David, let's stop here for a moment. And listeners, we'll be right back after this very brief message. Hi, Paul from Mytel again. A huge part of developing a supported corporate culture is communicating to our customers, our employees, and all other stakeholders. At Mitel, our job is to make communication easier, more convenient, and more efficient through technology. We're proud to be the sole sponsor of the Lead from the Heart podcast and its message of empathy and caring, not to mention safe, open, and honest communication. Again, if you'd like to learn more about Mitel, you can find us at mitel.com forward slash mark, M-A-R. David, we have a podcast tradition where we take a break from the discussion and we move into what we call cleverly the heartbeat round. What I'd like to do is ask you a dozen or so questions. Actually, I think I have 13 for you that relate more to your personal interests and influences and ask you to answer them quickly and instinctively. In other words, in a heartbeat. Are you game? Yep. All right, here we go. The trait you think has been most vital to your personal success? Um learning disability. What was it? I have just a terrible time. Like I'm a really slow learner. I'm a very visual learner. And I don't think there's any way I would have wound up in design and innovation. Did I not find that the philosophies of design thinking really jibed with the way that I thought? And it's, I think also made me much more uh, 
open-minded to the fact that people are smart in lots of different ways, and I should never judge a book by its cover. Thank you for sharing that. And you're a professor at one of the top business schools in the world, so um, that's really great. A change in life you yourself have resisted making. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Eating better and getting more sleep. One person, dead or alive, uh, speaking of eating, you'd most like to have dinner with? Uh, Miles Davis. Oh, wow. Cool. A book that should be required reading for every human. Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It's come up more than you can imagine. Has it? And Never Entered My Mind by Miles Davis is one of the most sublime songs ever. If your job was to motivate people to get a COVID vaccination or wear a mask in public, what's one way you might have approached persuading people that's different from how it's been commonly done? Ask them for advice on how to persuade others that are different from them. Give me a little more on that. So I would ask people, have you or a loved one of yours ever been affected in a meaningful way by a communicable disease that could have been prevented? And if they say yes, pneumonia or yes, whatever, then I'll say, how would you have given advice to those individuals in that public health situation to prevent that disease? And then I'll say, like, we find ourselves in a similar situation with COVID-19. Like, what advice would you give to public health officials on how to get more people comfortable with these countermeasures that can save lives. So abstracting it away from reactants towards them giving advice and designing their own solution. Fantastic. One thing you hope to see change in the world? Uh, Sort of reversing the negative effects of climate change. The quality that derails the most leadership careers? Arrogance. Number one answer. Your synonym for the word heart? Rhythm. One subject you think all leaders would be wise to bone up on? Empathy. A life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier. That I never learned a thing by talking. Trait you admire most in other people. Humility. Something you think we all need to do at least once in our life. Play an instrument. And finally, a prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true. Oh, God, that's a really good question. (laughs) I think I'm smart enough to know that I can't predict the future. (laughs) (laughs) Those were wonderful. Thank you very, very much for going through the heartbeat round with me. Thanks. Traditional leadership theory says pay people as little as possible and squeeze them as much as possible. And it's predicated on the belief that people are expendable, we talked about, and that compensation is all workers should expect in return for their work and that leadership is solely about ensuring the business's goals are achieved. So this is my final question to you, David. Members of this audience have a very different view of leadership. And that continues to be met with great resistance in workplaces. It's a philosophy that when managers intentionally care and support their people, opposite of exploiting them, and they ensure the needs for growth, appreciation, meaningful work, inclusion, all of these and others are met, that productivity naturally and consistently soars. So we have plenty of fuel to demonstrate that leading this way drives sustainably greater performance, but the resistance largely comes from people who are unwilling to break away from tradition, what you call inertia, Mm -hmm. and who fear being seen as weak emotion Mm -hmm. for showing care to their employees. So as I was reading your book, this was the question I most wanted to ask. I thought it'd be a cool way to end the discussion by asking if you could coach us all and how we might implement the desired leadership change in our own organizations and persuade more managers to start leading with greater balance of mind and heart. It's a fantastic question. And, you know, I think we can touch on each of the frictions just a little bit. So inertia, again, status quo. 
one of the remedies for inertia is even though you might be asking for big change to start small, it's really hard. The, the more intimidating a change in either behavior or organizational dynamic seems, the more resistant people will be to it because of the perceived amount of departure from the status quo that it will entail. So one of the ways that we can get people started on a path to change is not to come in and say, all right, we're going to do digital transformation or all right, we're going to change the way we relate to our employees or our employee value proposition. Maybe it's to say, all right, with these next couple of crucial hires, let's change a little bit about what we say the value proposition of the organization is and see if we're able to win people that we wouldn't have otherwise won by talking about how we relate to our employees differently. So we're not talking about rolling out a whole scale employee value proposition change. Let's just experiment or prototype with like these two or three next hires or these two or three next promotions and see if it generates the result we're looking for. Most people can get on board with a contained experiment if it doesn't feel like it's all encompassing. So I'd say start by shrinking the size of the, of the challenge and making it a little bit more bite-sized and experimental in nature. In terms of effort, I think this goes back to what we talked about before. How ambiguous is it for the organization to change the way it relates to its employees? Is there a roadmap? Are there step-by-steps? Are there certain KPIs we're going to be tracking and looking for? To say that we need to be more human-centered with the way that we look at employees and to say, for example, that our employees are hiring us in addition to us hiring them, how do we make this more concrete so that even the more old school leaders in our company can start to say, all right, the first step, I can accomplish the first step. The first step is X. And once we've done that, we move on to step Y. But creating this very clear roadmap about how we're going to transition from our current way of thinking to a new way of thinking and knowing that there are little stage gates along the way that will only move to the next step once we've sort of cleared the hurdle of the previous step. I think that can be really helpful because to say we need to be more human centered, it's like, all right, well, how do I start? Well, I don't know. Be more human centered. (laughs) Kind of unsatisfying. Emotion, I think, involving the people that you're designing for in the design process. So if you're talking about redesigning employee value proposition and you're not including all ranges of employees in the design process, it will never be successful it will never get past emotional friction because you won't know where it's lurking in order to find it sort of like Barbara Beskin on project teams around aging, having the people you're designing for involved in the design process will not only help you come up with better solutions, but it will also help you spot where emotional friction might be hiding, waiting to stand in your way. And then finally with reactance, which is an aversion to being changed by others. There's a few ways that we can address this. But one of the most important, I think, is allowing the individuals we're trying to change to create their own arguments for change themselves. And one of the ways we can help people create self-generated arguments is by engaging them in discussion and even just asking them for advice. Rather than saying, I'm looking for your input, I'm looking for your advice. Like, I'm debating between these two or three different directions, senior leader, which would you which would you advise me to do? And people love to give advice. What they fail to realize is when they're giving advice, they're also internalizing their own advice in their own minds, which make them a little bit more receptive to the change themselves. So it's almost a little bit of a jujitsu move where they're sort of subconsciously architecting the desired change that they will have to implement. But by giving you advice, it takes away some of that personal reactance that they might have otherwise had. And The book is full of a bunch of kind of fun examples and some crazy examples about how this works in the real world. Everything from brainwashing to smoking cessation, like what are the methodologies that work? 
And people will be surprised by how small reframes and the way people relate to things can make a huge, huge difference. I was going to summarize what you just said, and I was taking notes as I was listening, and then I thought, no, I'm just going to encourage everybody to go back and listen to the last five minutes of this again, because you've done such a brilliant job of summarizing. I just love the ideas of this, and most of all, the starting small with experimentation and involving people in the whole thing. It's just so kind and thoughtful, and it's, we're going to do this together as opposed to we're going to do this to you. On behalf of my audience, David, I just want to say thank you so very much. Honestly, if no one else was listening to this, this would have been worthwhile. <laughs> You're a really smart guy and a lot of really great insights in your book, which I loved and highly recommend, of course. Thank you so very much. Oh, thank you. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Likewise. As we leave, I have a big favor to ask you. Our big goal for 2022 is to further grow our listening audience, and it would be so greatly appreciated in that regard if you could take a moment right now, think of somebody who might be interested in our podcast and introduce it to them, a friend, a colleague, anyone. Send them your favorite episode or send them this one just to say you might be interested in this. We would be so grateful. Here's why. When we see that our audience is growing, it's the number one sign that we should continue producing more episodes. The moment this podcast stops growing, we're going to get the sign that, okay, time's up. And I'm not ready to end, but I'm hoping that we can continue to grow and we need your support to do that. I want to thank my wonderful team, Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, and my producer, Eric Oz. Our theme music is the jazz classic, Take the A-Train, written by Billy Strayhorn and performed by the extraordinary BBC Big Band Orchestra. And I leave you now with one old and one new reminder. Number one, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. And number two, I'm adding this now, love your people. Love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Thank you.